0: Welcome back to 10,000 Knows. We are sporadically re-releasing some of our past episodes throughout the summer, and today's guest was one of the chosen ones. Because these episodes are older, please forgive any out-of-date references. These re-releases have been chosen because they are either some of our most heavily downloaded episodes, relevant to some current event, or just a conversation with someone we deem to be a badass that we felt should be reintroduced to our newer listeners so that their pearls of wisdom are not buried forever. Either way, we hope you enjoy. Here it is.
1: What we do here is go back, 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 back.
0: This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to Ten Thousand Knows, where I get a chance to sit down with fascinating folks from all walks of life to talk to them about where they are now, how they got there, and some of the challenges they've had to overcome along the way. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Allison Levine is with us. She is in the house. Um, we uh, thank you for being here. Thanks for of
1: course. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, not really here. You're in. Where are you? San Fran. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm not going to give her whole list of of uh, you know credits and accomplishments because you can read it on the bio. But I just give you some highlights. Uh, New York Times bestseller for uh, her book. On the Edge, Leadership Lessons from Mount Everest and Other Extreme Environments. Um, I believe Coach K did your foreword on that, right? He My did. Position.
1: He did indeed.
0: Just a little basketball coach down at Duke where Allison got her MBA. Um, she's also, I don't know if she currently does this, but an adjunct instructor to the U.S. military um, she has an adventure grand slam, which means that she has climbed the highest peak on every continent and skied both poles. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. Um, she is the captain of the first U.S. women's expedition of Everest, and she's got a really cool TED talk, uh, which you could find online if you want to Google her. When we're done, um, it's it's really great. It's 18 minutes, and I had the fortune of seeing her in person when she was in Los Angeles and she did the full thing, which was as good as it was online, in person, she was, you were really, you were amazing. So um, really funny, really self-deprecating. You've done so much and yet you kind of, you know, you, you are so humble and accessible and it's, it's really uh, a lesson for other people who might be listening. You know, if you're on your way to being some big shot, don't get too big for your britches allison
1: <laughs>
0: really you're like you are like all about service which is why i think you just continue to do well with speaking people invite you back more people want you because you as much as you've done you don't really believe the hype about you which keeps you hungry in my opinion and and keeps you you know from me not hating you otherwise i would hate you <laughs> <laughs> i mean, be like, why are you so much better than me? No. <laughs> so I don't even know where, like, you know, Allison, before we did this, I said, yeah, give yourself like an hour and a half, two hours. And she's like, really? That's pretty long. She's like, why do you keep doing that? <laughs> so I could talk to you for like 14 days, but I'm get, we're just going to- That gonna would
1: talk- be a long podcast. It would be, but I think days. people
0: would really love it. No, but I, I, I think what we'll do is um, I got a bunch of things I'd love to talk to you about. Um, but we're not gonna get to them all and let's just see where it goes. Uh I'll just kind of give us a jumping off point and then um and then we could just see what happens, you know. And guys, if you want to go see her TED Talk, you'll get whatever else you need to get. We don't have to cover it here, but you're gonna hopefully get the spirit of Allison in in this next hour. Um, you know, before we go into the stuff that's covered in the TED Talk and Everest and everything, can you kind of tell us? Something I didn't know about her. She was you were Schwarzenegger's. Uh, <laughs> what, what was the what was the the position you held? Uh, I
1: was deputy finance director uh, deputy finance director for Californians for Schwarzenegger, which was the uh, his election to become governor of the state of California during the recall campaign in two thousand three.
0: Can you kind of um, walk everyone through that story that you told me about how that that kind of came about in a strange way, didn't it?
1: it did come about in a strange way. And it was a great lesson in, um, just creativity and, and trying to, you know, do something to just be different. You know, I always tell people you don't necessarily have to be the best, fastest, smartest, like you just have to be different sometimes and you just have to be relentless. And so, um, I had met some of the people that worked for him when he was, uh, Working on a state ballot initiative called Prop Forty Nine, which was funding for after-school programs for kids, and that was sort of his foray into politics before he decided to run for governor. And when he was campaigning throughout the state to raise money for Prop Forty Nine, um, I, you know, I attended this fundraiser. I met some of his people, and then they contacted me when he was coming to the Bay Area because they knew I I lived in San Francisco. And at the time, I was a brand new associate working at Goldman Sachs, um, so very junior level, low level employee, and. Um, one of his staff members called me and said, hey, Arnold's coming up to San Francisco and he's got a couple hours to kill. Uh, You know, do you have any ideas? Can we bring him to Goldman Sachs and, you know, have him meet some of the partners or the, managing directors and so I thought well how cool would it be to have Arnold Schwarzenegger come to your office right and (laughs) so I ended up talking to the you know the manager of our of the San Francisco office and he said sure bring him in and what I did is I um you know they they wanted me to introduce Arnold so I sort of played off of the phrase that his staff member used when he contacted me he said Arnold's coming to San Francisco he's got a couple of hours to kill so I thought okay what happens when Arnold Schwarzenegger has a couple of hours to kill? And I went online and I studied up on all of his movies, which are a couple of hours, right? Yeah. And how many people he killed in each of those movies. So what happens when he has a couple of hours to kill? Well, in you know, this movie, and I rattled off when I introduced him, I said um, – so, you know, the person that's, that's here with us today, obviously, you know who he is. And he was coming up here and he had a couple of hours to kill. I said, let me tell you what happens when he's got a couple of hours to kill. And then I rattled off the names of the movies and how many people he killed in each of those movies. That and amazing. he thought it was hilarious and his staff thought it was hilarious. And they said, um, that was by far the most creative introduction that we've ever heard for for Arnold. And they said, you know, if he ever runs for governor, you should come work on the campaign with us. And I thought, oh, he's not going to run for governor. And then of <laughs> course, it, I mean, an hour after he announced, I got a phone call saying, hey, any interest in working on the campaign? And that's when I put in my notice at Goldman. I left and I went down to LA for a couple of months to work on the, the recall campaign.
0: Wow. I mean, what a great story for so many So many lessons in there about preparation, about kind of going above and beyond, about kind of thinking on your toes, uh, thinking outside the box.
1: I maybe had one minute, two minutes to do an introduction, and it's just a reminder that your future can change in one or two minutes, right? So my career trajectory changed because of an introduction I did for somebody. Because I just thought, oh, it's Arnold. Like, I can't stand up and just do a boring introduction. Everybody knows who he is, right? So I've got to do something different. So just doing something to differentiate yourself, just something that people remember. And oftentimes, it's just one or two minutes that can change the course of your future.
0: Yeah, that's so funny. As you're saying this, I have a huge smile on my face through that whole story. And I just keep thinking of all of the great, you know, Quotes that he has for his kills, you know, like what happened to Sully? I let him go. <laughs> what happened to Buzzsaw? He had to split. I mean, it's like my my childhood is like filled with Arnold with Arnold lines. You know, he's just got. I remember one of my buddies in in high school who's like a big guy, and he kind of got in into weightlifting at some point, and he was he was a huge Arnold fan, and he used to always go in the Soviet Union you wake up in the morning and find your testicles floating in a glass of water, which is from red heat. (laughs) It's just like amazing quotes that you got there. Um, I, I love, I love that. Um, it kind of, you know, that story just kind of like encapsulates everything that I think about you because you're, you're such a hustler, but you also do it in a fun way and you do it in a way that's kind of, um, you know, when Allison was down in Los Angeles, we went and had dinner the night before I was going to go see her speak. And you, you're so, you're so accessible and human that I'm like, oh yeah, she's, you yeah, know, she's just like me. And then the next day I go to this thing, it's filled with all these, you know, very important people and she's up on the stage. And not only was the speech, really incredible and inspiring. And like I had like, there were four guys behind me that every time you would crack a joke, they're like, oh, she's so cute, isn't she? You know, like, <laughs> like everybody really loved you. And then not only that, what kind of the difference between seeing you on the computer in the TED talk and then seeing it in person was that you had that huge backdrop behind you. So those slides that you have that I, I'm, I think might've been taken by National Geographic um, of your expedition on Everest were, like you kind of talk about it and you throw it away like it's nothing. But when I saw pictures of you uh, on those ladders, those like little, like those rickety ladders that you guys tied across these huge, I want to say crevices, but you call them crevasses. So I'll try yeah, to- Yeah, either calm, way. Crevasses. Um, it, it, like you had, you had one picture that looked like it was like staring down, like maybe from your point of view down to your boots- on the ladder. And then like, I don't know how many thousands of feet going down. And it, it really gave me kind of gave me the willies a little bit just to see that picture. I can't even imagine how you had the mind control to deal with that kind of like high stakes arena. Can you kind of, sure. I don't know, you know, so, just expand on that.
1: Um, part of it is, uh, Allowing yourself to feel fear and process fear. So most people think that fear is kind of a bad thing. You know, it makes us feel like maybe we're wimpy or we don't have enough courage or we're too vulnerable or or we don't have confidence and that's why we're feeling scared. And I actually look at fear differently. I look at fear as a really useful tool. And I always remind people to to let yourself feel fear and don't beat yourself up when you feel scared or intimidated because fear is what I use to propel me forward. I use fear to my advantage. Fear keeps me awake, alert, on my toes, like aware of everything going on around me. So when you're standing on top of one of those rickety metal ladders, it's, you know, could be three or four ladders that are strung together, spanning a massive crevasse, you know, where you could fall hundreds or thousands of feet to your death if you fall off it. When you're crossing one of those ladders, it is so darn scary. Um, But that's what keeps me moving forward. And I always tell people fear is fine. You know, fear is just a normal human emotion. If you're not scared when you're on that mountain, something's wrong with you right? So fear is okay, but complacency is what will kill you. Complacency is what puts you at risk. Is, you know, Fear is only dangerous when it paralyzes you. But other than that, fear is just an emotion. It's just a human emotion. So just learn how to manage it. Learn how to harvest the adrenaline you get from fear to use it to propel you in the right direction.
0: Yeah, and, and I agree with all of that. The f- the funny thing for you though is like, you know, the rest of us humans are kind of put to that test in different ways, but the fact that you are put to it in in a way where, <laughs> you know, like the fear is that you'll fall to your death just seems, you know, that much more intense, which is, you know, why you're on the show, why you talk on stages around the world because you've done it at such a high level. It's it's really cool to hear how you articulate it though. Um and and the other thing, kind of that that you're dealing with when you're on those ladders, uh, that I think pertains to whether you're in the business world or or you're an actor in a scene um, or you know uh, a mom dealing with her kids is you talk about um, like you have a plan, but you know you don't you don't take it, you, you kind of say I think at, maybe in the speech you said like take actions based on the current conditions, not on some outdated plan right. that you had. And there's like, you have like giant chunks of ice that could like slide in when you're on those, <laughs> not yeah. only could you fall off to your death, just if you like, you know, lost your balance, but you also could be doing everything right. And there's the fear of like some big chunk of ice coming down and knocking the whole right. Thing down, Right.
1: Right, so that's the funny thing is we're all so programmed to do to be good planners, right? Even you know in the business world, in the climbing world, in the entertainment industry, whatever it is, like you have this plan and you put it together really carefully, and you make sure it's really detailed, and you're going to follow it step by step, and you you know you keep it with you and. And what you have to realize is that the way things move today, the pace of the business world or the unpredictable factors in the mountains, whether it's, you know, weather, avalanche terrain or crossing a crevasse, whatever it is, there are going to be shifts in the environment. You know, everything moves and changes very quickly. So you have to remember that while it's good to plan because that keeps you on track and it helps you sort of figure out what your goals are, just remember that whatever plan you came up with, whether it was you know last year, last month, last week, or, or even that morning, your plan is outdated as soon as it's finished. So it is good to plan because that can help you get on track or stay on track, but you cannot be hell-bent on sticking to that plan no matter what. Because you know, so many people that come up with a the plan, they're like, this is my plan, I'm sticking to it. No, that is the wrong approach. You have to adjust, change direction, or take action based on the situation at the time, right? So, for example, you could like plan out your whole Everest expedition. Here's the day that we're going to get to base camp. This is how many days we're going to rest at base camp. This is when we're moving to camp one. This is when we're moving to camp two. Whatever. This is the day we're going to go for the summit. Well, weather comes in, you know, or... You're suffering from altitude sickness or somebody has something else going on with their gear. You know, your, your, your crampons busted. And you got to take some time to fix it. There are all these things that can affect your plan. And so you have to just be adaptable and realize a plan is, is, is a guideline. It's not something that you have to absolutely stick to. Just treat it as a guideline. Treat it as like a living, breathing you know, document or whatever. If you've written it down, that that is going to change throughout time. So expect the plan to change and adjust and adapt to it based on the environment, right. rather than based on you know whatever plan you came up with.
0: Right. And what's cool about that is, uh, for me, I've been having all these conversations now because of this podcast with people in all different fields, and it all trickles down to the same thing. Whatever field you're in, like I hear you talk about. Be adapting. And because I'm an actor, my mind goes to, you know, bad acting is when you stick to your preparation. <clears throat> Great acting is when you prepare, but you're open to ha- happy accidents and, and, you know, magical moments on the set. And like the, the big, the famous one, I don't know if you're a movie buff or not, but uh, the, the famous one that kind of a lot of actors will talk about is um, on the waterfront. Uh, Ilya Kazan directed it, and uh, Marlon Brando and Eve Marie Saint have this scene where they're walking through a park in Hoboken, and, and he's kind of this like big burly longshoreman. He he was a, a boxer, you know. That's why he's you know I could have been a cantando, Charlie. That, <laughs> you know, that. he yeah. he and she's kind of uh, you know more prim and proper, and they're kind of their rom- their romance is budding, and they're walking, and during one take. She dropped her glove. She had these little white gloves and she dropped it and they didn't call cut, which, you know, lesser artists might've been like, oh, it's not perfect, you know, but they didn't call cut. And Brando, who was known for being so instinctive, just kind of squatted down, picked it up. And while they continued to talk and sit on this, um, this swing set, he just kind of, you know, is putting the glove onto his big meat hooks and the glove is so dainty and white. It doesn't really fit. And people, you know, later on, you have film critics are like, wasn't that an incredible moment where that, you know, summed up their relationship that they would never, you know, that they couldn't be together (laughs) from wrong sides of the track. All he was doing was reacting and adapting in the moment the way you talk about adapting to, you know, a chunk of ice sliding at you and saving your life. And he saved the moment. They all did. They all
1: Right. Stayed in the and, moment
0: and didn't fear it being, oh, it's not perfect. It's like, you don't want perfect because life isn't. Right.
1: Perfect. And I know, I mean, that was a, a really great example of... Um, you know, something that happened in that movie. But I know, you know, I hear and I can't point to the exact examples the way you can, but you just hear about certain scenes in movies where they talk about how the actors just kind of went off on their own and just improvised and added their own dialogue. And so, you know, sometimes the art of improvisation uh, is more important than the art of preparation.
0: Right. And yet, you know, if you don't, prepare at all it could be such a loose improv that there's no structure and then you could have something that ends up being alive in moments but it's flat maybe structurally so there's, it's kind of this combo of preparation and adaptability yeah and, and I guess and-
1: I don't even know I'm so, sorry I don't know if preparation I don't think that was really the right word I was using for because obviously you want to prepare but I just mean it's um between like sticking to your your plan you know what you've practiced what you've rehearsed the way you've prepared and just being open to being open to switching it up and improvising and just doing you know adapting on the fly is is so important
0: which is why i think you know bad actors that they'll say oh it's a wooden performance you know because wooden because it's stiff it's it's rigid as and you're talking about something that's more fluid so um let's kind of uh piggybacking on that and you talk we'll kind of talk about preparation and Strategy uh, which you go into in your speech um, that I find fascinating, it, could you tell everybody a little bit about how it works with like the acclimatization, which is kind of just getting used to um, altitude but getting used to it slowly, uh, and how you guys do that on the mountain
1: yeah I am glad you asked about that because it 's something that 's really important in the mountains, but it 's also i I feel like the the acclimatization. Process and what I learned from it in the mountains is something that it applies to me in the business world and my personal life, you know, almost everything. So, uh, most people don't understand that when you're climbing a big mountain like Everest, you don't just get to the base of the mountain and then climb to the top and climb back down. It's a little more complicated than that. You spend about 10 days hiking just to get yourself to the base of the mountain. So you arrive at Everest Base Camp, you're already at almost 18,000 feet, right? So Base Camp's Around seventeen thousand five hundred feet. So you're already at altitude. So wow. you have to spend a few days there to get used to that altitude. Um, just because you're so high up.
0: Second? Could I interject for one second? If yeah. Anybody is a skier out there, I think like Mammoth, which is five hours from L.A., I want to say is maybe seven or eight thousand. Just to put that in perspective, you're saying base camp is at sixteen, fifteen, or sixteen
1: thousand. Seventeen 000- five. Oh my
0: God. Okay, go on. Sorry. Go seventeen
1: thousand five hundred feet at base camp. Right. So. Higher than anything in the lower 48, you know, uh, Denali in Alaska, which is the highest peak in North America is just over 20,000 feet, but anything in the lower 48, you know, they all top out at 14 and change. So you're at 17,500 feet and that is your base camp. So you feel, you know, you feel it, you feel the altitude when you're there. So you have to spend a few days there to get used to the altitude before you can start heading up the mountain. So you spend a few days at base camp and then you pack up your stuff and you move up to the first camp, that's camp one. Camp one's about 19,500 feet or so. So you move up a couple thousand feet and then you spend the night there. And the next day, you actually don't go from camp one to camp two, you go from camp one back down to base camp again. And then you spend a few nights at base camp again. And then you go to camp one again. So you're back at 19.5. And then you climb up to camp two, which is over 21,000 feet. So you go to camp two and you spend the night up there. After you spend the night at camp two, you pack up your stuff and you actually come back down, not to camp one, but all the way down to base camp, right? It's 17,500 feet again. Then you're going to do it all again after a couple of days. Go to camp one again, go to camp two again. Next day, you're going to spend maybe nine or 10 hours fighting your way up the mountain to get to camp three. Camp three is almost 24,000 feet, right? So it is way the hell up there. And then after you spend the night at camp three, you actually come all the way back down to base camp again. Oh, and the crap. reason that you keep coming back I'm down to base I'm getting tired
0: camp, just listening to you.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, if you see <laughs> it, like if you look river. at this and map it out, like if you had a map of the, you know, the route on Mount Everest and you were looking at this, like how far up you are when you're at camp three, you're like, oh my gosh, 24,000 feet, right? Just about um, 5,000 feet from the summit. You realize you have to come all the way back down to 17,500 feet. And oh. the reason you have to do that, the reason you have to keep coming back down to base camp is because you have to let your body get used to the altitude very slowly. And that's the what you mentioned, that term acclimatization, right? Getting used to the altitude. The reason that you have to come back down to base camp is because anytime you're above an elevation of about 18,000 feet, which is gonna be any camp above that base camp, because base camp 17.5. Anytime you're above that base camp, your body is starting to deteriorate and your muscles are getting weaker because that's what happens above 18,000 feet. So you want to keep coming back down to base camp so you can regain some strength. But the catch is, you need to spend time up high to get used to the altitude. But as you're up high, you're deteriorating. So that's why you come back down low. So it is this crazy catch 22 of, Wanting and needing to spend time up high, you know, again, you see how to, but having to come back down low to regain some strength. So, you know, and let your, your muscles, you know, heal and, and maintain (laughs) maintain those muscle fibers because you're deteriorating.
0: It's like a large scale version of high intensity interval training in a way. Like, you know, you, you pound it out on the treadmill, you go, and then you come down and you go to a slow jog and then you go back and you push your heart rate and then you come back down. It's, it's, but it's like, in a, on a massive scale. I can't imagine psychologically how that would be for you to get that close and then go all the way back down. It so, is.
1: And on. there's this, you know, psychologically, you sort of feel like what's different about it versus like interval training is you feel like you're losing ground because every time you get higher on the mountain and then you backtrack, you're like, oh, you know, there's this sense of like, oh my God, I just wiped out my progress. But you didn't because you're back at base camp and you are able to you know eat more hydrate more get sleep rebuild some muscle strength right regain your strength so what i you know think people need to realize is that just because you're going backwards on the mountain right it doesn't mean you're not making progress and for whatever reason when we set a goal we think that in order to make progress we have to move in one particular direction toward that goal but sometimes you have to go in the opposite direction. You move away from the goal in order to eventually get to where you want to be. So uh, you know, don't think that when you're coming back to base camp that you're losing ground in any way. Just look at it as an opportunity to you know, regroup Regain some strength so you're better out of the gates the next time around. And one of my favorite phrases uh, from my speech that I give is uh, that backing up is not the same as backing down.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Sometimes
1: you back up. Sometimes you change direction and you might feel like, oh my gosh, this isn't what I was trying to do. This isn't where I was trying to go. This isn't what I had in mind. I am not making progress. But just remind yourself that sometimes a change in direction can end up what helps you reach your goal. And it might be, you know, that the route looks a little different than you originally anticipated, but that's okay. You're still going to get there.
0: You know what that makes me think of ego. Our ego is the only part of us that has a problem with that because you you know, because you uh, prepared for that climb you know the human body you know what it's capable you know how to do it you know the strategy so you know that's the way to get to the top but our ego and whether it's you know that i i'm thinking of like you know for an actor it's like it, it's it's going it, it doesn't even matter for an actor anything it's it's kind of going like rocky going back to the old gym it's you need to humble yourself for the bigger cause you right. know you need to right. go and and remember what it was like when, you know, the fundamentals in a way to go for the, the the bigger goal that's way out there. And in the moment, it might look like, yeah, it looks like you're backing down. But if you have a plan, you go, hey, okay, you guys can say whatever you want about me. I'm doing what I know I need to do to move on further down the road. That's where my mind goes when I hear that.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Um, so uh, it is... It is called 10,000 No's, this podcast. So um, I kind of want to get into a big no for you on this Everest expedition that you did when you were the captain your first time up. Could you go into what happened (laughs) when you got close?
1: Yes. and you know what's funny is I'll give you like another no. Like there were so many no's along the way before the big no on the oh, mountain. I'm sure, but I'm
0: sure. I mean we that's what I said we could talk for weeks. Uh, you know, yeah, you have-
1: even like trying to get this expedition funded, you know, we were it was the first American women's ever expedition, right? And we wanted to climb this mountain as a team of American women. And we were looking for sponsors, right? Because at the time, it was about $25,000 a person to climb that mountain. I didn't have that kind of money. You know, nobody else I knew who had that kind of money. Right. And, you know, no one in the climbing community, certainly. So we had to go out and find a sponsor. So Ford was our sponsor for this expedition. And initially, they turned us down. They said, not interested. And, um, the, the guy like sent me an email and said, I think we're going to think, you know, this looks like a good idea. I think we're going to pass. And I ended up calling him and I left him a voicemail like four o'clock in the morning. And I was like, Hey Kurt, listen, I'm like, I I saw your message. I know you're going to pass, but I really think you're making a big mistake and here's why. And then I went into like all the reasons why I thought Ford should be our sponsor. And the guy, sent me an email the next day. And he was like, well, I don't know if it's because my daughter's name is Allison or because you caught me at a weak moment, but we're going to reconsider this. And they ended up sponsoring the whole expedition. Uh So that's just a reminder that when you get a no, that is just one person's Opinion at one point in time, and if you ask them at another time, you might get a different answer, which is what happened with me. So, anyway, cut to the chase. We're on this expedition, it's sponsored by Ford, super high profile. First American Women's Everest expedition. All the morning shows, you know, had us on, all the evening news anchors are interviewed us. 450 media outlets following our climb, CNN doing live updates from the mountain. It's all very exciting. We're going for the summit, (laughs) and then. Weather comes in, and we missed the damn summit by, call it, you know, a couple hundred feet. Like, we literally had to turn around in a storm a couple hundred feet from Uh, the summit of a 29,000-foot mountain after two months on the mountain. That's how long an Everest expedition takes, two months. So, we we got denied, right? We got shot down, and there was nothing we could do about it because it was weather.
0: Before anybody is thinking, how why didn't you just go up there? Tell them how it was like to take a step, yeah, so
1: that. once you hit the twenty six thousand foot mark on a mountain on any mountain, so twenty six thousand feet is is where Camp Four sits on Everest. Once you hit 26,000 feet, you are in what's known as the death zone. And the reason they call it the death zone is because at 26,000 feet, uh, human life can no longer be sustained, right? You're not supposed to be up at that elevation. Jet planes fly at that elevation. Your body is literally slowly starting to die. And at this elevation, you have to take about five to 10 breaths for every step, so, think about that, like practice that. Sit there as you're listening to this, or when you, if you're in your car or wherever you are, take five to 10 breaths and imagine just taking one step. Five to 10 breaths again, another step. So, that's how sure slow you move. Are, so,
0: those breaths are like,
1: <sighs> yeah.
0: <sighs> right? I mean, that's, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, a couple hundred feet from the summit that would take several hours. It would take several hours to go a few hundred feet. So that's why when the weather came in, we turned around at about 28,750 feet, um, just right about the south summit of the mountain. And we had to turn around and come back down. And uh, we didn't, you know, you only have enough gear supplies and oxygen to go for it one time. Once you burned through most of your oxygen supply the way we did getting that close. You don't have enough left to try it again. So basically you spend your two months on the mountain and you take your shot at the top and you make it or you don't, and then you're done. You're done. So, um, so we were done and we burned through our oxygen supply. We had to come back down to base camp, uh, and come home and then face the media again, you know, oh, what happened up there? And, you know, it's hard because you're celebrated before you leave and then you come home and now you're just the butt of Jay Leno's opening monologue joke, right? Oh, so yeah. how, how does that feel? And it's, uh, it's pretty crushing. I got to tell you, it can be crushing because you feel like you let people down. I felt like, you know, the team was disappointed. I felt like we let Ford down, you know, our, our amazing sponsor that made it possible for us to even go on this trip. I felt like we let you know America down. The first American women's Everest expedition. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's hard when you have something that that is high profile like that, and not even the the fact that it was high profile. Just the the blood, sweat, and tears we put into it. Right. right. All the training. We all been basically, you know. Training for years and years, between the five of us, we had over a hundred years of cumulative climbing experience and And we thought this is our this is our shot, right? This is our dream. We're living the dream, and we didn't do it. Well, <laughs> we didn't make and it.
0: That's what I just want to like just take a beat to let people that are listening and and this is almost my whole reason for doing this podcast in the first place is you know. You listen to interviews with people like you who have done superhuman things. You really have. And a lot of times the interview ends. And for me, I walk away going like, man, well, you know, she's just better than me or she's just more uh, capable than me or whatever. But I want people to really think about that. It's it's a choice that. Allison and her entire crew that went up there made and and the stakes, like, yeah, you get the glory of you're you're here telling your story, you've told your story around the globe, I think. Yeah. The the downside of taking those huge risks is that the lows are probably really low and 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 really tough to deal with. I mean, when you have a spotlight on you and then it doesn't go the way you anticipate it. It's hard to deal with, and uh, I'll let Allison tell this because she tells it better. But y- you were not going to go up there again, right? And then
1: no, because it's hard too. Like you come back and you know you see all your friends and your work colleagues, and everyone's like, "Oh man, sorry, yeah." You know, there's no one like celebrating you. They're like, "Oh, tough break. Oh God, you know." Right, right. And it, like you just feel like you're the whole world. I is- went thirty thousand feet. Like, like- yeah, like we're. <laughs> And, you know, everyone's like, oh, you, you know, like people would, you know, introduce me to friends. Oh, this is my friend, Allison. Like, just climbed Mount Everest. And then everyone's like, oh, no way. You're at the summit of Everest. Well, no, I wasn't quite at the summit of Everest oh wow okay so you (laughs) didn't climb Everest like you tried to climb Everest or I'm like yeah thanks um so it's hard because you just feel like you have this big public failure and everybody's disappointed and you start second guessing yourself oh could we have made it should we have pushed it you know could we have made it through the storm you know to tag the top but what what you have to keep in mind is that the goal of any expedition is to come back alive Right, that's the number one goal. Number two, come back with all your fingers and toes. Number three, come back as friends with the people that you're with, right? So I was like, okay, we made it back alive, that's the most important thing, but I just thought, I don't wanna do this again because I don't wanna put myself in this position because what happens if I don't make it again, right? Right. Is anybody, first of all, is anybody gonna sponsor me again? Is any company gonna be willing to get behind me after I already didn't make it the first time? You know, and what are people going to think if I don't make it a second time? And people don't understand that it's not just about you and your ability and your skill. It's about all these factors that you cannot control. Your health, the health of the team, the conditions of the route, the conditions of your gear. Most importantly, probably the weather, right? The weather it dictates everything on that mountain. Everything. So, mm. um, I was like, I don't want to go back again because what if I don't make it again and the weather could come in again and what, you know, how's that going to look if I don't make it again and that's going to just kill my career and I'm just going to be known as like the person that can never make it up Everest. And so it actually took me eight years before I got up the guts to try that mountain again. And I actually ended up climbing in, in honor of a friend of mine that passed away very suddenly and unexpectedly at age 37, because I always said, you know, the only way I would go back to the, that mountain is if I went with my friend Meg, you know, cause she was this amazing athlete. She ended up, it's a long story, but she ended up, um, Dying from the flu, believe it or not. She had some complications with lung infections. And um, so I thought, after she died, I thought, I always said I'd go back to this mountain with Meg, and now I'm going to do it. So I, after she died, I engraved her name in my ice axe and I went back to that mountain and gave it another shot in 2010. And what happened the second time is that in similar circumstances, we had another storm on Summit Day, and I thought, oh, I cannot believe I am back here eight years later in the same exact situation, right, ready to go for the summit in comes a storm that it just it's going to blow everything. but what I remembered um, from the first expedition, like I kind of put a lot of the lessons I learned into place, and the second time I was there, I had a lot better feeling for sort of my pain threshold and my risk tolerance, and I When the storm started coming in the second time in 2010, I thought, okay, wait a minute. I've been in this situation before. uh, And it doesn't scare me as much as it did before because I know what it feels like to be high up on that summit ridge in a storm. I know what it feels like to have the living shit kicked out of me. Hmm. Um, I'm not afraid of that this time. So, because in 2002, and we turned around, there was one person who did make it to the summit that day shortly after we turned around. So I thought, well, it's doable. People do it. So maybe I can like just trudge my way through this storm. And I really couldn't see that far in front of me because visibility was horrible. But what I realized is that you don't have to have like total clarity on what's in front of you in order to just put one foot in front of the other, right? Just put one foot in front of the other. And once I did that, I took a step and I was like, okay, I could take one more step in this storm. All right. I took one more step, didn't kill me. All right. I can take one more step. I'm still here. I'm still alive. I'm still on this ridge. All right. Now one more step. And I kept going and I realized getting to the summit of Everest is just putting one foot in front of the other. Just put one foot in front of the other and keep going. And, and then I ended up making it to the summit in 2010 um, in very similar situation, very similar circumstances to what I had in 2002. But like I said, in 2010, I, I had the, like, the learnings from that failure from 2002 and everything I learned from that past struggle in 2002 is what helped get me to the summit in 2010.
0: Yeah that's really so cool. And and by the way when Allison is talking about putting one foot in front of the other I remember um from from hearing your speech that it was like you were doing this some like sometimes like didn't you start when you were going for the peak didn't you start like the night before and you guys had headlamps and you were like your headlamp would shine on a rock maybe five feet in front of you and you'd go, just get to that rock. Or or am I missing Yeah, exactly. So you actually
1: start out for the summit the night before. So 10, 11 o'clock at night, you start heading to the summit. Um, And because the situation is, you don't know how long it's going to take you based on, Weather and other circumstances with your oxygen tank. You know, the summit could take you twelve hours. Summit could take you twenty hours. But you don't want to be high up on that mountain in the afternoon because that's when storms typically come in. So you want to try to be on the summit as early as possible. So we started off, I think, around eleven o'clock at night. Hit the summit around eight a.m. Uh, and
0: can I ask uh, you something? What drives yeah. What drives one to do this or what drives you? What drove you? You climbed the highest peak on every continent, you skied both poles. What do you think it is in you that 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 is like a fuel, that's like nitro fuel? I mean, most of us don't have that. And you know, you you're I'm just wondering, like what is it that that gets you going up there that motivates you?
1: Well, when I was younger, what first got me interested in going to these places and doing these things when I was younger, I was very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers, maybe because I grew up in Phoenix or something. It was like 150 degrees in the summer. <laughs> and I, so I loved learning about these polar environments and I would read these books and I'd watch documentary films and uh, long story short, but I was born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older. Um, and, I, so I had, and actually your cousin had the same um, condition,
0: Artie. My brother, yeah.
1: I mean, sorry, your brother, Artie, yeah. Was it, he the, had, same?
0: Was it the same? Because I don't know if it was described that he had a hole in his heart. I thought he had like a, a he had like a an arrhythmia where he had an extra beat. And at one point in his early twenties, he had to get it like zapped and they-
1: Yeah. So they I had his. three of those procedures to- Holy Zap God. So and that type, it's called Wolf Parkinson White syndrome, but it can take different forms and it can affect people differently. So you know, there are people that have been died from that have died from it. There are people that have been permanently brain damaged from it, um, and then people that don't have a lot of symptoms from it. For me, it would cause me to pass out. Like I was always um, losing consciousness from it because no blood. This arrhythmia would set my heart into a flutter, and no blood would get to my brain. So when you
0: were how old were you passing out? Like when you were. Um, a
1: kid? So I started when I was a teenager, and um, the problem is my parents, I grew up in this very tough love household, so I would tell my parents, um, you know, I, it happened. I passed out for the first time when I was a teenager, but I felt this pain in my chest and this. I had trouble breathing, and I would tell my parents as I was growing up, something's wrong. Something's wrong with my heart. Like I can't breathe. Like it feels like there's something sitting on my chest. And my mom would say, Oh, you're fine. You're just nervous for your history test or whatever <laughs> it was. And I'd say, no, no, I think something's wrong. And she would say, well, okay, just go, go down the street and see Dr. Clark and tell him about it. And I was like, well, Dr. Clark's a veterinarian. Like, I don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's going to be able to help me. And my parents never took me to a doctor. So they always just thought it was all in my head or they were like, yeah, there's a doctor down the street. I'm like, right for dogs. That's Um, so funny. You know, this is a great
0: lesson for parents. If your kids are complaining about something, just don't do anything and they may too someday climb.
1: (laughs) So they never did anything. And then finally, when I was 17, I passed out for the first time on a ski trip, just sitting in a, you know, sitting in a cab and talking to people. I wasn't skiing at the time and they he took me to the hospital and the doctors in the emergency room, the doctor said, um, I'll never forget this. He said, okay, well, who, you know, where are you from? I said, Phoenix. He said, who's your cardiologist? And I said, I, I don't have a cardiologist. And he said, how, how do you not have a cardiologist? You're like, I don't
0: even have a pediatrician. I got a veterinarian.
1: <laughs> right. I was like, call oh my vet. Um, I was like, I've had my rabies shots. I have the heartworm tested. Like I should be good to go. Um, So
0: it's amazing. He
1: so that's when they said, Well, you've got this hole in your heart that's causing this. He said, This is actually a very dangerous arrhythmia. So I had one procedure when I was 17 that didn't work, I had another one I was 32 that did work. I had one more when I was 45, but when after the second one, I was now in a new state of good health and I wasn't afraid of you know passing out anymore. I mean, there was a time where I wasn't allowed to drive a car or anything like that because my I wasn't stable enough, but um, once I had good health again, I could do anything. So this light bulb went on in my head and I thought, okay, if I want to know what it's like to be these guys going out to these remote extreme environments, to the North Pole, the South Pole, to these big Himalayan mountain ranges, then why don't I go there instead of just reading about it or watching documentary films about it. If I want to know what it's like to be Reinhold Messner and drag 150 pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice, then I should fricking go do it. And so I just thought, well, why not? Why not me? Why if these other people are, can do these things, then why can't I? And um, had you the thing already
0: is, gone to? Had you already gotten your MBA from Duke at that point when you started? No. I started,
1: early? I climbed my very first mountain right before I started uh, the MBA program at Duke. So I quit my job two months before grad school started. And I went and I traveled. And I, uh, I wanted to go do something that I wouldn't have been able to do before the procedure on my heart. So I made plans to go to Kilimanjaro with two of my girlfriends and we were going to go climb this mountain. And it's not technical at all. I mean, anyone out there listening to this podcast can climb Kilimanjaro. You don't need special equipment. You don't need special skills. You just, again, put one foot in front of the other and you're going to feel the altitude. It's going to suck the wind out of you, but Anyone can do it. I love that that
0: you're like, yeah, so I have this hole in my heart. I got to go get a thing. So I'm just going to go climb Kilimanjaro real quick. And
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, is the girlfriends that I plan to go to Africa with um, decided a couple weeks before the trip that they wanted to go to Club Med in Cancun instead. So... I ended up going on this trip by myself, and I just found a guide at the base of the mountain for 300 bucks, and I did the Kilimanjaro climb just on my own with a local guide and local porters, and um, so that was the very first mountain that I went to, Wow! and that was a really important one for me because while it wasn't a technical peak, that is the mountain where I learned that I have this voice in my head that tells me that I can keep going every time I want to quit. So this is my first time at altitude. And as I said, it's not a technical peak. You don't need special skills or equipment, but it is over 19,000 feet. So you feel it. You are sucking wind up there. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I feel dizzy. I feel sick to my stomach. I feel weak. Oh my gosh, I'm taking so many breaths. I am out of breath. I need to go down. I need to go down. And it, but I thought, okay, I'm just going to take one more step before I go down. It's just going to take one more step because maybe the view and my vantage point will be a little bit different if I just take one step. Maybe yeah. the perspective will be different if I just take one step. So, okay, let me just take that one. So I'd take the one step and I would look around me again and think, okay, this is cool. This is really cool. All right, one more step. And then I would take one more step. All right, okay, just one more step. And then I'm going to go down and All take right. one more step all right, wait, 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 no, one more. And then I'll turn around. And I kept doing that. And then I found myself at the summit of that damn mountain. And I realized that it, that's where I have that voice that says, okay, you can take one more. You you just took one more. So how about just one more step, Allison? So Come do on.
0: you think that that's something that people are born with or not? Or do you think it's something that can be learned that you could that you could kind of go talk to someone that you see because I'm sure I don't know that you do this particularly, but it, it, in a way, you, you know, you're going in, and speaking around the world. But like you, you, you are a coach of sorts. I don't know if you ever do that one-on-one, but like, do you think that you could kind of teach people this is how I do it, or do you think it's like some people got it, some people
1: don't? No, I think everybody has it. Every single person has that voice. You just have to find it and listen to it because on every mountain after that, where I felt like quitting, where I felt like crying, where I felt like I couldn't do it and just like, oh my God, I'm going to vomit. I have a headache. I can't do it. I'm tired. I'm homesick. I am cold. This is it. I'm going down. Like I had that voice that says, You have been here before, not like on that particular amount, but you have been here as far as being in this psychological place, this emotional place of saying, I can't, I got to quit. And you kept going and you kept going before. So you can keep going now. And it's just reminding yourself that that voice is there. It's just finding it. And once you found it, it's always there. So anytime I'm in a situation where I'm like, I can't, like, I just freaking can't, um, I I know I have that voice that goes, yeah, you've been there before. You felt like that before and you did it. So let's just do it now.
0: Yeah. So you build on your victories. You know what? I'm, I didn't expect to go here on this, but, um, something you said just made me think it. And so I want to mention him. The way I know Allison is through my cousin. I'm going to get emotional. My cousin, oh, me David, too. David Ferrara, uh, Dino, everybody called him. And, um, and Allison and David worked together, their first jobs in LA, you guys were selling like, I don't know what, like-
1: <laughs> Pagers. Like op- oh my God. The day before pagers. cell phones, there were pagers, just yeah. little things in that beeped. Burbank, that,
0: right? Yeah, Burbank. You had
1: something that beeped so you could go to a payphone and call and get your message. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, so, so when you started to say that, I started- I just started picturing, you know, you guys and, um, and I think Marshall, their other friend, um, we're all working together and, and you described this kind of going the distance and I just want to bring it up kind of to honor him because I wouldn't even be talk, I wouldn't even know you if it wasn't for him. And, um, he was like, you know, when you're a kid and you're, you're growing up and I I played sports and everything. And when you happen to have A cousin who is like you know he was kind of like the leader of of the cousins on my mom's side of the family he was the oldest he was responsible like there when, when when he died um so many stories came out about his incredible superhuman ability to connect people and to like just go above and beyond out of uh, to to help people when you know there was a story of like his friend's mom died in Boston and he was on a plane and he was there in like a jean jacket like he was just a larger than life dude and and just a go getter and like I re- <laughs> it was kind of funny I, I, I'm sorry if I'm taking us off track here but no I, I like this, I like this conversation and and you know you can go see Allison's speech we're gonna get all that but but I, I I feel like this is I remember going to see him. Um, his last collegiate lacrosse game. He played at Bucknell. (laughs) I took two friends from high school and they were playing Rutgers. And like, he, it was just so funny as a young kid, seeing your older cousin, you take your buddies and you're like, yeah, that's my cousin, that's my cousin. And it was his last game. And there was some guy from Yorktown on, on Rutgers who, I think, broke some school record. And so Dave, Bucknell was getting crushed. They were getting crushed. And all of a sudden, like, the ball was on the other side of the field, it's like in, in Rutgers' offensive side of the field, and David was a defenseman. And all of a sudden, we hear this scuffle. And I don't know what happened if someone talked smack to him, but there was like a brawl going on at midfield. <laughs> And he got, no he, he got booted from the game and he ended up sitting with, it, it was, it was just hysterical. I don't I, I know where that came from in me, but this, this fight, this fight that he had and this, yeah. this, this life force and, and you have it too. And it just, it's, I, I know this is a tangent, but it's just, it's so cool. And I feel so kind of honored that you were like willing to sit down with me and talk about it and to, then to hear that and think of, you know, you guys and and that that kind of drive and spirit and t- for you to say, yeah, everybody's got that in them. You know, maybe in some people it's more apparent and it's more on the surface. But like my hope with something like this is someone's driving, listening to this right now and they're going like, huh. You know, I didn't think I had it, but now that they put it that way, maybe I do have a little more of that than I realized. And it's just like, yeah. get them get them sparked and get them fired up and get them to go after whatever it is. And it's not necessarily climbing Everest or Kilimanjaro, but it's like, there's something in, in people who are listening's life that they're trying to get to or overcome or whatever. And hopefully a little conversation like this can kind of go, Huh? Maybe drop it in a certain way that they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. Gonna do that.
1: and and maybe it's funny because maybe the way I talk about it like will resonate with some people, not with others. But that's why it's important to find people like your cousin David. You know, t- to me he was Dino, and uh, and I definitely learned that. Like my first job out of college selling those damn pagers, my god, uh, and having a guy like Dino in the office who was he was a guy that just like would go to the mat to get shit done like when he was a clutch player like when he said he was going to do something he did it he made it happen um and you can there's like surrounding yourself with people like that I think really helps like he definitely influenced me the other thing is um for as like hard charging of a guy as he was he was also incredibly generous so I'll just share the story but when um you know he was from the east coast you know like you so it was we were living in LA, and I was from Phoenix, so I took like a bunch of friends from work home to Phoenix for Thanksgiving because the East Coast guys couldn't afford to fly home for Thanksgiving because they were going home for Christmas, right? So they couldn't go home for Thanksgiving right. and Christmas. So, um, so we all went to Phoenix. I brought a, a bunch, like five people, home to to my parents' house in Phoenix, including your brother because he, yeah, he was on um, Santa
0: Barbara for a. He semester. was
1: doing yeah. exchange program in Santa Barbara, so that's how I, I met your brother.
0: A, he was doing a quote exchange program.
1: That's <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and Dino came home and and so we walked we were standing in the kitchen my dad came home from work and Dino was wearing his Bucknell sweatshirt. My dad goes, "Bucknell? Like you're a vice." I'm like, "I went to Bucknell." And he's like, "I love your sweatshirt." And Dino literally took off the sweatshirt on the spot and handed it to my dad. And my dad's like, "Oh no, no, no. I don't want to take your sweatshirt." And he's like, "Here, take it. Like t- I really want you to have it." And it's like that Uh, You know, that was probably the only time my dad met Dino, but that stuck with him. So it's just a reminder that those little moments that you can have with people can have a huge impact on them. Like one little act of generosity, like for Dino, he was like, yeah, it's a sweatshirt, whatever. For my dad, was like, oh, fuck now.
0: You know what else he used to do? And this is, you know, again, we're going on a Dino tangent, but hey, (laughs) great. He, anytime he saw because he was this entrepreneur, I mean- well, there's a whole other thing, but he used to. Um, anytime he saw kids with a lemonade stand, he, if he was driving and he saw kids with a lemonade stand, or he was walking by, he would reroute and go past them and get lemonade and usually throw them like a twenty dollar bill just to encourage the fact that they were out there trying to do it. I mean, right? Build cool little like that? budding
1: entrepreneurs. But how
0: cool is that to to encourage the you know to encourage people to go for it. Right. I mean, he I'm, I'm thinking as we're talking, I drove cross country when I was between freshman and sophomore year of college with a high school buddy. And one of our stops was with Dino in Hermosa Beach. And I remember him like he was, I think, 27 years old at the time or something, which I thought was old, which is so funny to me right now. Um, but I remember him getting up in the morning. He's like, carpe diem, boys. And he just like, you know, like yanked up the the blinds. and It was like sunny out. He's like, let's go. And he's like clapping. And like he was so excited about what he was doing. And I remember I, we, me and my buddy were like, wanted to kill each other by that point of the trip. And we drove, <laughs> ironically, to Duke because we had a friend who was there over summer. And we drove like 40 hours straight, like just not really talking. And I remember thinking, what do I want to do? What do I want to do with my life? And didn't know I was going to be an actor, thought I was going to be a lawyer. And I I remember specifically going, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to feel the way that Dino feels about what he does. I want to feel that way about whatever I do. I want to be all in. And so, you know, he, he, the influence that can have on the people around you without you even realizing it when you conduct yourself in a way or the way you are going and climbing these peaks and going and speaking and inspiring people and making them laugh that is that's what you're putting to the table and it's it's awesome i mean i i i'm you have me all fired up Uh, well, listen, I, I, I could keep talking to you. I know, you know, you, you are like cut it at an hour. No, um, no, I can walk. keep talking. We're good. Wait, okay. Let me see if I have a few more questions and we'll start. I'm fine.
1: Okay. I'm, I'm good well, to go.
0: I don't want to, I know you're busy. I don't want to like take no, you. No, no, no. I blocked off.
1: I blocked off plenty of time.
0: Okay. Well, we, I mean, we kind of covered a lot of it. There was one thing that I thought, um, and I was why was it? Uh, I was thinking about, oh there was wasn't there a picture of you when you summited Everest that was in like the New York Times or something?
1: yeah, um, so uh, in the it was like the front page of New York Times sports section um when I summited Everest in two thousand and ten, that was the completion of what's known as the Adventure Grand Slam, which is climbing the seven summits, the you know the highest peak in each continent, and then skiing to both the north and the South pole, so uh, with my summit of Everest on May 24th, 2010, it, I completed that. I think there's, you know, a couple dozen people in the world who have completed the grand slam. So, uh, the New York times, you know, reported on it. And,
0: and okay. no, well, I bring it up because what you, when you brought it up in the, the presentation that I saw, what I really loved was you go, yeah, so there I am. And you go, but that's not the whole story. And you go, you see those, you you see that thing I'm wearing that was sponsored by so-and-so and And you see that ice pick so-and-so, you know, this company and, and all the other people on my crew that were with, you, you know, like that idea that, yeah, uh, even if you are the person who's kind of, you know, getting that front page picture, kind of acknowledging the team around you that you can't do it on your own and, and nor should you try to be doing anything that you're doing on your own. You need a team. You know, you need help. Yeah. You know, I just
1: do. think it's nice to acknowledge the people that helped you get to where you are. So, yeah, it's like this picture of me on the summit of Everest and all these prayer flags flapping in the wind. And, you know, I'm holding out this T-shirt with my friend Meg's name on it, you know, this tribute to her. And, and what I remind people is that, you know, it might be a picture of me on the summit and maybe I got the... You know, the recognition for completing the Grand Slam, um, but you know, you look at the picture and it's just me, but there are a lot of people that made that happen. You know, my sponsors that funded the trip, the logistics providers, the, you know, guides that gave us direction along the way, the Sherpas that helped us ferry loads up and down the mountain, my friends who helped me train, you know, before I went to the mountain, there were a lot of people that had a hand in my success. Um, They, they weren't in that photo there. And I just wanted to make sure people acknowledge that and, and, you know, when you, when you achieve something that's cool and you have your moment of glory, but remember, like, don't ever, don't ever forget that there are a lot of people. Usually there are a lot of people that had a hand in in getting you there. And it's so important to recognize those people and and give credit where it's due.
0: It is. And it's, and it's like, it's so, it makes me like you better. And it's also actually smart because if you isolate yourself and you go like, yeah, I'm great. I did this. I did it all myself. and, And you don't acknowledge, it's like, yeah, so you'll have that picture, but you'll be all by yourself with it. It's like, why not? You know, and it's interesting that, that as I've kind of gone along in life, the people, ironically, I think I used to think, oh well, super successful people, you know, they're, you know, there's like a negative connotation in a certain way, and what I've found in a lot of cases, not all, but in a lot of cases, is the people that are really uh, on on top and really kind of thriving a lot of those people are the way you, it's a, it's such a pleasant surprise are the way that you are which is they're bringing people around them up you know instead of trying to separate themselves from the masses and make it seem like they're special they're actually bringing others up and it's like wouldn't wouldn't that be a better life no matter where you are in your in your career or any of that, like to have your crew around you, people that, you know, actually want to hang with you because you're not going like, I'm great. I'm great. I climbed all these peaks and, you know, it's like, who wants to be around that anyway?
1: Right. Well, and the thing is, when I look at it, when I look at, you know, my like quote accomplishments, end quote, um, if you let's think about this for a second. So I stood on top of a really high pile of rock and ice. Like that is the way I think of it. Like yeah. so what? Like that doesn't change the world. It doesn't change you. It doesn't change the world. Um what what can have a positive impact on you, your loved ones, your friends, your community are the remembering the lessons you learn along the way. Like when you're fighting like hell to get up there and what you can do with that information to help other people. Right. So For me, like, yeah, so I stood on the top of a mountain or I stood on the top of the seven highest peaks or got to the North Pole, South Pole, like whatever. What I think about isn't the accomplishment itself is what did I learn during the struggle? What did I learn during the fight? And how can I share that information to help people who are in their own struggle and who have their own day-to-day fight? Um, You know, what can I do to lend some encouragement? And going back to, you, you mentioned Dino going by that lemonade stand. Right, So I'm going to go back to that for a second because what he was doing, besides giving the kids money, um, was he was sending a message to those kids, I believe in you. I believe in what you're doing. And sometimes just encouraging someone and just knowing that somebody believes in you and that somebody wants you to succeed can really make a difference in an outcome. So, for example... Uh, on my 2010 Everest expedition, there was a guy on the trip who was uh, super strong. I mean, this guy's like 6'2", former naval officer, super smart, went to like Stanford and Harvard and MIT, like ridiculous, ridiculous, super strong climber. Uh, But for whatever reason, during our summit bid, when we got to Camp 2 on our way to the top, he had some kind of weird anxiety attack in his tent, and he came to the mess tent, and he was like, "You guys, I don't know what's wrong. I had an anxiety attack. I've never had one of those before. Like, I couldn't breathe. My fingers and toes were tingling. I just, I feel like I, I feel like I, I'm gonna go down." Oh. And there was like total silence, and I'm thinking, "This guy's put so much into this expedition. He has been such a great teammate. He has been so strong throughout. Like, I, I'm not letting this guy turn around." And I just said, "Listen," I said, "You." Are not going down. I said, You can do this. I said, I, you know, if your fingers and toes are tingling, like tell me what to do. Do we have to, if we have to help you, like clip your safety carabiner into the, f- fixed rope. Like we can do that. Like we can help you. We will stay with you. We will help you. But I can tell you that being on the summit for me, isn't going to mean as much if you're not there with me. I said, because part of getting to the summit is getting there with you. You know, you've been such an integral part of this team. And he thought about for a while and he ended up deciding to continue to climb and he made it to the summit and he, blah, blah. But he sent me a note afterward, after the trip was over, he sent me a letter and it said, thank you for the encouragement at camp too, because that is what got me off the fence. And if you had not, you know, encouraged me, I think I would have turned around. And so for me, it was just like a couple sentences of like, look, you're not turning around. Like you gotta, you gotta come with us. Cause it's, I, I want to see you up there. I want to see you do this. I want to see you succeed. And I want to be, I want to be there with you. Mm. Um, that just a few words changed the outcome for him. So don't forget what, like, don't underestimate the impact that a few kind words can have. And, or Dino going in, you know, supporting the lemonade stand. And those kids are probably like, yeah, this guy loves it. He believes in us. He thinks we're great. And who knows what that spurred them to, you know, go on and do in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, who knew that little Mark Zuckerberg at the lemonade stand yeah. that day would go on to...
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, you're the second person that I've interviewed another that said that same thing, because I I had an actress who that's, I think, being released um, this this week. uh, And she had this amazing story of kind of growing up in poverty with two uh, addicted parents. And and we got to the point at one point later in the conversation, I said, yeah, when my parents would say, oh, speak to so and so's son or daughter about being an actor. And I used to be so positive. And then at a certain point I was like, you know, I'm just going to say like, Hey, if you can do anything else, go do it. It's really <laughs> and no, and that kind of, I kind of yeah. shifted into that because I thought it was kinder. I figured if I said that to them and they walked away, they didn't really want it anyway, but she had an interesting take because she came from less, uh, less um, privilege in a way than, than I did. She you know, I had the good fortune of having. I wasn't. Uh, I mean, I, I felt like we never ha- had money within our uh, kind of uh, town, but in the grand scheme of things, it was you know pretty pretty good childhood. And more yeah. importantly, I had two parents that were extremely encouraging to anything that I was attempting to do. And and so maybe I took it for for granted because she goes, you know. I don't know that you should do that I think she goes if I heard that at a certain age she's like I was teetering on the edge of what I was going to be able to do and it was encouragement that actually brought me out of myself and allowed me to accomplish what I eventually accomplished but she's like I was so like she was so on thin ice that any words other than encouragement might've, have, might've have like sent her back into a spiral, you right. know? And so it, 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 I, it made me think like, oh, I do need to be careful with my words and can't be so flippant about like, yeah, you can, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, in a way it's like, why not, why not kind of give them a little pat on the back and go, you know, keep going, take another step, even if it's right. just, you right. know? Um, well, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, wrap it up so you don't yell at me when we're all done. <laughs> and, and I'm going to say to that end of Allison, you know, taking these lessons, and, and uh, putting them out there for other people to learn from. Uh, she she does all these speeches, I I think you could uh, she'll give you all of her handles if she wants to do that. But I think it's like Kepler speakers is where she's represented. And if you're a company that's looking to get someone as cool and energetic as Allison, I don't know how you would ever go wrong uh, having her. She's amazing. And then if you're just like, you know, some person out there listening to this and you want to hear more, go get her book. It was a New York times bestseller, which means I guess a few people read it. Um I, I, <laughs> leadership lessons from Mount Everest and other extreme environments and wherever else do you have anywhere else people can follow you or
1: yeah so I was going to say if anyone has any questions um feel free you can email me through my website which is allisonlevine.com there's a little contact button there you can get in touch with me and the, those emails come right to me I promise I will respond to you. you can also find me on social media at levine underscore allison on uh twitter or instagram and I'm on facebook as well so reach out to me message me I promise I'll answer any questions that you guys have we you know be happy to hear from you
0: All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me and for bestowing all that wisdom on us, because that was really incredible. I really can't thank you enough for taking the time, Allison.
1: Oh, pleasure's all mine. Thanks so much for having me.